Yeah, see, this is exactly what people think. You get the wrong idea if you just think about the, the, the beers that have survived from that time and that's how it was. You might think these were all just boring brown bitters that all tasted the same, but that's not the case because they were far more distinctive. What you have to think about is as a beer like Harvey's. So beers like Harvey's didn't used to particularly stand out because there were loads of beers like that. That's the one that stayed the same. And welcome to We Are Beer People, a podcast all about the many different people who help us enjoy beer. I'm your host, Rob Cadwell, and I reckon if you're listening to this, then there's a good chance that you are one of the beer people too. You might be involved in the world of beer, you may want to find out more about the industry, or perhaps you simply enjoy drinking the stuff. So join me now as I have a chat with one of the beer people. I love about beer and brewing is that it's of its time, of its place and of its people. We can look into a brewery and see why it brews certain beers, what was popular, who was making it, where the ingredients came from and how it was brewed. And it tells us so much about the time, the place and the people. And that's why I'm really excited to speak with today's guest, Ron Pattinson. Ron's a beer writer and a beer historian and he's well known for researching, uncovering, deciphering, and documenting historical beer styles and brewing practices. And that's no mean feat, when you consider that might involve having to navigate a brewery's idiosyncratic archives, take thousands of notes and photos, and make sense of large amounts of data recorded and stored with variable consistency. And you might have heard of him from his website, Shut Up About Barclay Perkins, or his publications, which range from The Homebrewer's Guide to Vintage Beer, to city and country guides around Europe. So let's have a chat with one of the beer people about beer and its place in history. Hello, Ron, and thank you very much for joining us today. And a very big welcome to We Are Beer People. How are you doing? Oh, very well, thank you. Fantastic. Um, we've got snow uh, here at the moment in England, which I'm saying is a quite a big thing. And I heard you had snow earlier on this morning. Yeah, we had a, 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 a dusting that didn't even, yeah, a few spots here and there, but I'll count it as snow. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be traffic chaos here uh, later on with our with our dusting we've got here. But as we're recording through the, the wonders of the internet, can you tell us a little bit about where you're recording from and help paint a picture for our listeners? Uh, well, I'm here in my house in Amsterdam, so yeah, I've got my garden just out there. Well, I say my garden, it's my wife's garden, really, just out there that I can look at. It's very pleasant and very cosy, especially now I don't have to work anymore. That always helps massively, I think. And uh, how long have you been in Amsterdam for? Um, I moved to Holland in 1987, so quite a while ago. So I wonder, um, Ron, if you could take us back to the beginning and how did you get into beer writing to begin with? And why beer, I guess? What was it that brought you here? Uh, okay, how do I get involved in beer writing? Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. Well, the first thing I ever wrote was a long time ago, which was, I think, in uh, 1989, which was for an article I wrote for What's Brewing about pubs in East Berlin. Um, and that was the first thing I did, and then I didn't do anything for ages until the internet arrived and then I started having a um, my own website which evolved into the European Beer Guide which I started in so the, the first stuff I did was in 1996 so for about another 10 years after that I was writing a lot of basically travel guides so guides to pubs but also guides to breweries and stuff like that and the occasional article um and then i started when i was still doing that i I started to get interested in beer history and then once i started looking at at, started doing things like looking at a lot of original sources then that's when i started doing my blog and publishing basically the stuff i was researching on that uh and then 
yeah, I started, uh, I put some of that stuff into books. And then I got asked to do a, pro- a proper book by a publisher, which is the Homebrewers Guide to Vintage Beer. So that, that came out in 2014. And since then, I've been doing a lot of self-published books along similar lines, really. So a combination of, of beer history and homebrew recipes. So I've got a whole series of things. I mean, the, the, the idea is this was my, my grand project many years ago when I first started this, was to write a history of British beer from 1700 to 1973. And that was, yeah, I, I thought I might get that in one book, which was a bit... Yeah, being a bit optimistic. So basically, each chapter then from that from that book has ended up being a, a book of its own. So I've done from 1914 to to 1970 now in ones I've already published, and currently I'm working on one about the 1970s. And another one, which is 1880 to 1914, which is actually a book I really want to do because that's, I think that's probably the most interesting period of, of British beer. I think that's when, if I, if I was able to go back in time to any period to, to go and drink the beer, that'd be the one I'd pick. Because um, I think you've got a point where they, they start to get fairly good control of the beer that was being brewed. They're brewing quite a quite a range of styles, quite a lot of nice, strong beers. So, yeah, I think that would be quite fun to go back to. So, so it's, a, it's a book that I've, I'm really interested in doing, and especially seeing as I can write loads of recipes and hopefully get people to brew the beers. That sounds brilliant. I love the sound of that. Um, and how, um, how did you get into writing in the first place? Well, I, I'd always been into it when I was a kid. And then I wrote for the student newspaper a bit in Leeds, Writing, writing music stuff, mostly because um, one of my friends was the art editor, so he, he got us to do all the reviews for him. Um, and then it was it, a lot of it was when I was living in the States in, in the mid-'80s, and uh, I was writing a lot of letters, and I, I just, yeah, because I didn't want them to be boring. I, I was making quite a bit of effort, so I was writing, you know, maybe five or six letters a week, uh, all by hand in those days, not even cheating, doing it on a computer. Yeah, and so basically through that, I've, I've I sort of got a style of writing, and then that carried on to when I started doing the, uh, the stuff on my website. Yeah, it just sort of went on from there. But for a while I was writing um, things for airline magazines, so the little sort of town reviews you have where you have a few restaurants and a few pubs and stuff like that, I was doing those. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. It was a time when I was unemployed. But it was really dead good practice because you get like 100 words to write about somewhere. And it's incredibly difficult to write anything that's even vaguely amusing in that number of words. So it was quite good fun trying to get jokes in and trying to be informative at the same time in, in a really small number of words. So it was very good practice in some ways for writing. Yeah, every word's got to count there. Yeah. I guess that's sort of, um, you know, there's been that common thread for where you've done city guides and things like that around Europe. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I tried quite hard when it, there was a certain point when I was doing writing pub reviews when I realized that if you just describe the pub and how it looks and stuff, it's really boring. And what that you really wanted to do was describe what your reaction to the pub was and how you felt in it. So a more emotional description of the pub rather than a physical one. And that's why I, I tried to go for it, is to try and say, well, what was it like for me in this pub? What was my feeling about it? Well, I hope people like that. And I thought it was more fun to write like, write that way. But but the whole thing about writing pub guides is it's it's just a complete mugs game, especially nowadays when things change so quickly. It's it's why I gave up trying to keep them up to date because it was just so much work. And yeah, I just spent the whole of my life just trying to keep everything up to date, and I, I, that's not what I wanted to do. Absolutely. I mean, it's a good excuse to go out to a pub again and try it again. But I think it, you're fighting a losing battle there aren't you and it's best you can take a snapshot of that moment in time and that visit you made at that time to describe how that was and share that yeah uh, and, and sometimes i have some quite ni- had some quite nice stories about pubs um and, and that was that was nice to share but yeah well also my, my pub guides they're also a, 
I always say it's a secret family album as well, because in the photographs, in the pub guides, there's loads of my family and friends in the background, just look, not particularly looking like they're having their photograph taken. So obviously there's loads of people who are just in the background, but also there's in quite a lot of the photos, there's people I know in the background. And I've deliberately used those photos just... So, yeah, you can see my kids and, and uh, everyone in there. That's really nice and really autobiographical. So you can look back at those and can chart your, your, your different visits that you made. Well, yes. Well, that's also why I always write um, a whole series of blog posts about when I go traveling with my kids, partly so they'll be able to see, read this when they're older. I mean, they find it really annoying when I'm taking photographs of things all the time and, and making notes and stuff. So they're always, um, yeah, getting really angry, but... I told them, they'll, they'll appreciate it in one day. So much so that they've uh, inspired the name of your blog as well, though. Yeah, I should have about Barclay Perkins. The Barclay Perkins Brewery was founded in 1616 in Southwark, South London. And around 200 years ago, it was the largest brewery in the world. When I first started looking at, at brewing records, Barclay Perkins was one of the places I started. And I'd keep going on about it to the to the kids and, and, and my wife. And they got really fed up with it. And so that's what the kids would say to me, shut up about Barclay Perkins. And so the blog originally was somewhere where I could put all this stuff that I was finding out that my, my family didn't want to hear about and, <laughs> and maybe tell someone who did actually want to listen. Oh, fantastic. There's definitely an audience though of people there that, that do go to it. And um, it's a, such an amazing repository if you're looking for like old classic styles. Um, and I love when you kind of share the grist that was used in a certain year versus another year or from one brewery to another brewery. And I think I love sort of seeing that, that sort of information, that detail. And just quickly, grist is the ground mold and grains ready for mashing. Well, yeah, well, that, that's a, yeah, that, that, I, I find it fun as well. I'm never quite sure who else does. Um, but, but, but yeah, to get hold of that stuff, it, it's an awful lot of work. And I often think that if I'd realised how much work some of the stuff was, I'd never have started in the first place. Because, yeah, the, the, the whole thing about collecting photographs of brewing records and then then going through them, it takes a lot of time. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've got, you know, literally thousands of photographs of brewing records, and I've still not gone through all of them. I, at the moment, it's, it's on a, a need-to-do basis that I go through them. So I'll go through them once I haven't already done. I'll, I'll go through them when that's a period that I'm working on. So, and so I've got other ones which are, Periods, yeah, that I'm not doing writing anything about at the moment, so I'll, I'll, I'll just leave those often because I know I'm not going to use them in the future, and that's yeah, it might take me quite a lot of time to actually transcribe everything. So I mean, what I do is I take everything, I go through the brewing records, and I've got spreadsheets, and I'll put all the information into those. So it means that I can go, you know, pull up information really quickly, you know, see which malts brewers were using, a brewery was using in a certain year, you know how strong their peers were, stuff like that, just so I've got it all to hand. And then, yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time just manipulating all the data I've collected, so making tables of things, comparing stuff. Yeah, it's all very time-consuming, this, this type of thing. So at the moment, I mean, at one time I, I was not, not as focused and I was just going through doing loads and loads of different stuff. But now I've realized, well, yeah, I've got to use my time a bit more sensibly and think, well, what is it I'm trying to achieve at the moment? What's What makes the most sense to go through? I almost got really distracted with some Heineken stuff the other day. Just happened to see on the City Archive site something from 1948. So I could see what the strength of their beers were they were brewing in 1948, which I found quite interesting. So the, their domestic pills now hadn't gone up to full strength again yet, and it was 10.7 Plato. And Plato here is one of the units used to measure a beer's density, known as its gravity. So a thick and malty stout is going to have a much higher gravity or density than a very clean and crisp lager. And gravity is also an indication of the extent a beer has fermented. As yeast eats sugar during fermentation and converts it to alcohol, the density of the beer will change too, giving an indication of progress. So probably, I think, only about 4%. But they were brewing an export version at full strength. And then, another, and, then, and then Munich one was 11, 11 degrees Plato, 
So they're dark lab, so probably also about four percent. But yeah, I mean, I find this sort of stuff interesting, but I don't know who else does. I mean, partly because I've I've got a whole load of information about Heineken's beer during the war, but only up until like I think 1943, and then there's a bit of a gap because the, the, the they don't have the brewing records for after that, even though I know they were brewing right up until 1945, yeah. I've got some amazing information about about Dutch brewing during World War II. Oh, God, the, the minutes from the Dutch brewing organisation, they're really interesting because it's got lots of stuff about how they're trying to... I mean, they say in the minutes at a certain point that what their aim is is to have not happen what happened to Belgium during World War One, where most of the breweries got all the copper stripped out by the Germans and loads of the breweries never reopened. And so the Dutch Brewing Organization said right at the start of the war that one of their aims was to try and keep all the breweries open and not have that happen, not have them get have their equipment stripped out. And in that aim, they're actually incredibly successful. And the main way they argued to the Germans that they should leave the breweries alone was, you want us to brew beer for you, don't you? And so they were basically basically said, well, yes, you should leave the breweries open so we can supply you with your beer ration. And I mean, the stupid thing is that the Germans let the brewers' organization organize the beer rations so they knew exactly where all the German troops were and how many of them were there were because they knew what the beer ration was. So if they had to supply so much beer at this location, they knew exactly how many German troops there were there. And this information they passed on to the Allies. Wow. It's, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting story. But but the whole thing, about, you can see the, the, the minutes of the Brewers' organization. It's, it's, it's a wonderful insight into how people would react under occupation because what they're trying to do is they're trying to mitigate all the bad effects of it. So they're always negotiating with the Germans, trying to keep things as favorable to them as they possibly can. And it's a, it's a really interesting insight that you often don't see in the things that are going on behind the scenes. No, it's fascinating that. And where would you get that information from? Because I guess from brewery to brewery, from country to country, or, you know, even from brew to brew, the type of information and where you're able to get it from, how it's stored, how it's accessed varies. But also chronologically, that's going to vary hugely if you're looking at the 1970s, the 1940s, the 1900s. And you're, you're talking about documenting it from the 1700s onwards. That's going to be a huge range of how you're accessing that information. Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm now easy going back much more than about 1800. Because, you, you, yeah, there's not that much hard information about beer before then. Um, you've got a few analyses from the late 18th century where people, you know, early analyses of beer. So you've got, uh, was it, oh God, uh, this guy in the, in the 1770s did some, some of the first experiments with a hydrometer and analyzing beers. So you've got some stuff from early Porter, which is interesting. Um, but other than that, you don't really get much hard information until after 1800. So I prefer to go on from there. Most of the stuff I got comes from brewing records. You've also got things like analyses that were published, analyses of beers that were published in chemical journals, medical journals, lots of stuff from the British Medical Journal and and uh, the Lancet, weirdly enough. Both of them where they had some quite good uh, analyses of beer at various points in the 19th century. So things like that. They also training manuals for brewers, those uh, types of technical manuals. They're, they're good sources, though you have to be a bit careful with those because some people had some weird theories at times, which thankfully it's easier to spot nowadays than it might have been at the time, but sometimes there's things where you think, well, yeah, that's a bit weird. There's one that goes on about electricity all the time and how you have to try and avoid electricity in your beer, and it's a bit weird. Working with the notions and information they had at the time. Yeah, but this is reasonably late eight, 19th century, so yeah, it should have known better. Anyway, so, so yeah, sometimes you have to take those with a pinch of salt. Whereas with the brewing records, yeah, mostly I take those at face value, because partly because after a certain point, these things are legal documents, so this is part of the tax system. So they're not things you could just throw any old information into. They're, they're, they're suppo- these things are supposed to be accurate, right? And you could get into a lot of trouble if they weren't. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe those pretty much. Though there might have been cases 
before certain ingredients were, were legal when they might have been thrown in without them saying. So, you know, things like licorice and a stout, they might have done. Yeah, then again, maybe not because the penalties were, were quite big for not using an authorised ingredient. So it probably put most people off. So, yeah, so, so mostly you can believe those as being true. And then for, for statistics, um, it's... Uh, this thing, the Brewer's Almanac, which is published by the Brewer's Society, and then its successor, the uh, Statistical Handbook, which is basically the same thing, but with just the statistics and not the other stuff that you had in the earlier ones, which is like all the legislation and things like that, which is dead handy, um, I mean, for people like me. So those, I mean, I've got loads of different years of them. Um, between them, I can pick, I've been able to assemble these really long strings of statistics. So... You know, things like UK beer production, I mean, I've got it going back to, uh, I don't know, the 18th century sometime, right through until whenever the last time I bothered picking them up. So they're probably about 2015, 2016, something like that. So 200-odd so years worth. And of other statistics, maybe not quite that long, but quite, quite long spreads of them because that's what I like. I like to have look at things over a very long period of time. So it's nice to have really long sets of statistics. And so these, you know, the individual books will have ones for like maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years. So I don't have every edition of them. If, you, if I get one every 10 years, I'll get all the statistics I need. I just have to put them, you know, piece everything together. Yeah, that, that's, an, that's another thing that takes time. I can imagine, yeah. And how would you then go about sort of bringing that data together with data from an individual brewery or that type of thing? Well, then you can do something like, um, okay, so so one of, the, one of the statistics they have is brewing materials. So I could look at any specific year and I can say, well, how much malt, sugar, adjuncts, hops went into... Into, into beers on average, how does this compare with the recipes of this particular brewery? Then you can say, well, what do they compare to on average? Because when you look at it, at the numbers of the materials for the whole country, that gives you a genuine average for all beer that was brewed. And, and so you wouldn't be able to do that without those figures. You could have, I mean, I've got masses of information for certain individual breweries, but you don't know how, how representative that was. If I'd only ever looked at William Younger's brewing records, I would have an incredibly false impression of Scottish brewing because it turns out they were different to all the others, at least all the others whose brewing records I've ever looked at. They were not just a little bit different, but incredibly different. That's why you have to be very careful about just uh, about making two broad conclusions from a, from a small amount of data. I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm quite interested in Ireland, and I'm, I'm yeah, I'd like to go and have a go to Ireland and do some more research. Um, but I'm reluctant to write anything much about Ireland because I've only got a, a very limited number of brewing records that don't give me a very complete picture. I, I don't have any, I've even have ones that can cover a very long periods of time. And so, yeah, I've just got these little snapshots. It's very interesting little snapshots, but it's not enough to actually start writing a complete book about. I'd need way more information. And Ireland in general, it's harder to find information about than it is for for the UK is what I've found, unfortunately. Even though there do seem to be quite a lot of, of brewing records preserved, a lot of them at Guinness, which is a bit of a problem. It's, it's really annoying. I went around Guinness a few years ago with some people from Goose Island. You know, it was really friendly, the young archivists there. But it seems like it's changed now. Yeah, I have emailed and asked if I can have a look around, but not a personal contact anymore, which is annoying. So I guess you really need that context then from the, the brewing records, the statistics. Yeah, they all give you a complete picture. I mean, other things I, I, I use are... Priceless, because what you find in, in, I have access to the British newspaper archive, and in there you'll find newspaper adverts from breweries, which used to be for the beer that they were selling to private customers, so for people at home. But you'll have a full list of their beers and the prices. And so you can see, well, yeah, this is, these are the beers that people were producing. These are the draft beers, and you can see which are the bottled beers that are producing. So it's really interesting. And because the prices were incredibly stable between 1870 and 1914, you can really say, okay, well, if a beer is costing 36 shillings for a barrel, it's probably going to be about this strength. 
um, from breweries where the brewing records might not exist anymore, you also get a pretty good idea of what beers they were brewing and what strength they were. And you can see how much they were charging for them as well. Were there particular things you think that drove the types of beers that we were drinking over the years? Well, fashion, a lot of it. Um, exactly how beers were, well, a lot of that's driven by external factors. So, I mean, if, if you look at the development of beer styles in Britain, an awful lot of it just comes from the effects of war. So you see that you have this transformation at the end of the 18th century when there's a, the, the malt tax goes right up to pay for all the wars with the French. And that makes porter brewers look at how they were brewing and move away from using an all-brown brown malt grist to one that had, was mostly pale malt. And that was a huge transformation in the way the beers were brewed and also had an impact on how the beers tasted and how the beers looked. And that was completely driven by external factors. In a way, tax is a, a key kind of component there. Yeah. Yeah, like tax today, for instance, where, you know, low ABV beers um, have a lot less tax on them. Uh, and so you're seeing those beers being brewed under a threshold now. Yeah, yeah, that, that, things like that have, have a hugely distorting effect. Or you have the same thing in the, in the States where beers, have, whatever the strength, tax at the same level. And that's why you have so many really strong beers in the States because there's no tax disadvantage in doing that. And, and why people trying to produce 35 and 4% beers struggle so much because of the way the tax system is, they, they cost almost as much to produce as full-strength beers, so they have to sell them for the same price. Um, and, and so it completely distorts the American market. And, yeah, the, the, the way they're doing it in the UK, yeah, it's going to distort it as well. It, it's fairly obvious, and, and money's the thing that drives everything. So that's what's driven changes in, in, in the past. I mean, some of it's been technological as well. Well, I mean, a lot of it's just fashion. You know, it's people don't want to, you know, you don't want to drink what your granddad's drinking. Uh, that's a, a, a big part of what it is. I keep telling people, lager's going to go out of style soon. It really is. You just watch when it does, how quickly sales drop off. I hope you're enjoying our chat. And if you like what you're hearing, there are a few things that you can do that really help us out and help other people find the podcast. Number one, follow or subscribe to We Are Beer People podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review or rating. Number two, share the episode on your socials or even in actual real life. And if you want to stay up to date with all things We Are Beer People, you can visit our website, wearebeerpeople.co.uk, where you can sign up for a monthly newsletter and you can follow us on social media at We Are Beer People. And if you have any questions or comments or want to hear from any beer people, then pop me a message. Now, back to the podcast. It is really interesting. You've missed obviously the bulk of mainstream beer sales in the UK is lager. Uh, but that increasing interest that you're seeing in craft breweries making craft lagers and those sorts of things, uh, which wasn't there maybe five years ago. I think there's a renewed interest where people have had lots of really hoppy beers pale ales, IPAs and things like that, but are now getting more interest in uh, lagers. So we're seeing the growth of those as well as interest in dark milds. Yeah, I mean, if, if I can say what, you know, I mean, I actually didn't go to the States last year. So I'm talking about what I'd saw, saw from, from the year before that, but and also from what I've seen um, on the internet, there seems to be a lot more interest in dark lagers in the US, but it's, it, even so, I say that it's it's still a sort, sort of small fraction of what the market there is. So it's, it's it's very much a niche of a niche, but there definitely seems to be more interest in things like uh, Czech dark lager styles. I think especially seeing as the BJCP and people have finally recognized they actually exist. So I, I, I encourage people to, to make them. But I had a few last time I was uh, over in the States. I mean, a really nice uh, Czech style one in in Atlanta. So people seem to be more interested in that. I mean, my, my son was telling me that uh, they were making a much better job of German-style Pilsner in the States when we were over there in, in 2022. So, yeah, people do seem to be – I think there's more interest in lager, but, I mean, I found – yeah, I actually found the variety when I was in the States recently not, not that great and virtually no dark beers uh, other than the few dark lagers I found. Virtually no porters, but the only stouts I saw were nitro stouts, which I don't really like. Yeah. But yeah, in, in the UK, I'm just trying to think what I saw when I was in the UK recently. Uh, oh, I was pleased to see um, some nice dark mild, actually. That was, that was good. Yeah, really nice marble mild. Oh, lovely. Yeah, really good. You mentioned licorice 
earlier as a yeah. ingredient that was uh, maybe added in from the unauthorized list of ingredients. I saw today on an email for a new low alcohol beer from a craft brewery near me, uh, Siren, they're doing a kind of a new uh, porter, which I guess it's to make up the kind of flavor uh, that you need on a low alcohol beer. So it's half a percent, but it included licorice as well. That's really interesting. But people did that. I mean, and what you'll see is you'll find loads of recipes in, in 19th century books and 18th century books, no, 19th century books, where, where they'll be saying about, oh, you know, you know, using licorice in it. And people will get the wrong idea. They're thinking, oh, commercial breweries would use this. But no, these are recipes for domestic brewers where you could use what the hell you liked. And this is one of the advantages you had over commercial brewers, that you could use things like licorice, which they would have liked to use, but which they weren't allowed to. Do we know how big like um, domestic brewing was versus commercial brewing at that time? Oh, when you're looking at the, at the early decades of the 19th century, I think domestic brewing was maybe about a third of, of beer production. This is everything from the agricultural labourer making a making a little bit of beer for himself to you know the local lords like like Tracker House having their own reasonably sized breweries. For, for, because you have to remember that, that, that domestic brewers were often on a larger scale than commercial brewers because a lot of the commercial brewers were, were just brewing for their own pub at the time, so not brewing huge quantities. Whereas if you'd got a large estate and you'd got hundreds of workers, you would have a decent-sized brewery. Uh, and, I mean, this also covers domestic brewers. That also covers things like the, the, um, the, the universities, where the colleges, a lot of them had their own breweries. I think the last college brewery only closed in the 1930s. So, and, and they would be brewing in reasonable quantities. So it's not, you know, it's not just thinking, oh, these are just like home brewers. That Some of these people were brewing quite a lot of beer. So they'd often party gale and run off a, a, a week of beer. So obviously that would be the stuff the servants would be getting. Then they'd have sort of like a, a normal strength beer, which I guess is the stuff that would be the everyday drinking for, for, for the members of the actual household. And then you'd have the really strong beers they'd make and lay down for years and years on our end, which is what they get out when they had their posh guest round and wanted to show off. <laughs> no, and so they'd have different classes of beer depending on who it was for. And yeah, for, for things like the harvest, people expected beer at the harvest, but it wasn't stuff that was very strong. It would only be, you know, like maybe 4%. It's, it was about rehydration. It wasn't about getting plastered. Uh, in an early episode, we spoke with Henry Kirk. You mentioned that during his time at Fuller's, he was aware that you were helping out with going through kind of the Fuller's brewing uh, records and helping to unearth those and decipher those. So when they were brewing their new recipes there from the past masters. Can you talk us through how that came around and what you did? Well, I think it was something that John Keeling had been thinking about. And then he commented on my blog and I just said to him, can I come and look at your brewing records? <laughs> and, and he said, yes. So I, I went round there and I was, you know, photographing some of their old brewing books and we were talking about this, and I think this is where it came up. Now, I suppose this is something you must have had in mind before, on, on about you know them doing a you know some beers based on um, previous brews they'd had. You know, I would have been interested in in taking part. So, yeah, I was never quite sure how much I genuinely contributed to this. Maybe a bit, because the thing is that, that with, with Fuller's, it's not that difficult, because the old brewing records are in exactly the same format as their modern ones are. <laughs> But yeah, well, it was nice always having a chat with Derek and and, um, and John about the about the old recipes. So it was a very fun thing to take part in. But I did get quite good at reading their their brewing records because uh, you know I got a whole load of photos of them and I've been through a lot of them. So I, I, I do know where yeah have a good idea about what this stuff means. But they still got types of sugar in that they don't know what they are. Even ones that they were using as recently as the 1960s and 70s, they, they've no idea what they are anymore. Yeah, um, Henry mentioned there's like a few instances where for hops it might just say a farm or a region. But I think you were able to kind of, you could know actually it means this farmer and they were using this type of hop. Well, yeah, sometimes. And you can see the sort of, um, yeah, get used to the sort of abbreviations they use. Yeah, mostly you're lucky to get anything more than just the region. That, that's, all they, uh, that's all they really give you mostly. 
and then you just have to guess from that. And sometimes you can guess from you've got some idea from the from the grower's name where the where the hops come from. And are there any particular trends and things you think you've seen over the years? I'm sure there's lots, you know, from historic brews as we go through the years. Uh, loads of trends. Um, yeah, to and you know, to and from various types of beer. I mean, if you're talking long-term trends in British beer, one of the interesting things in the 20th century was the move away from bottled beer that you see in the 60s and 70s, which is interesting. I mean, if you look, if you're looking at say the the 1950s and 1960, you're looking at 35% of beer was bottled at a time when 90% of beer was drunk in pubs. So meaning a big percentage of the beer drunk in pubs was being was in bottled form, which is very different from, from what you've seen at any point since. I mean, you, you don't see very many people drinking bottled beer in a pub, do you? No, you don't, no, not at all. And so it used to be a lot more common. So that, that's one long-term trend. I mean, that's one of the things that did for things like light ale and brown ale, which, you know, you see have gone from, have just fallen off a cliff. It's interesting because I found some quite good good figures on the, the percentage of sales of things like brown ale, and that went from like four percent at the start of the seventies to one percent at the end of it. So, really, incredibly severe decline, losing you know sales falling seventy five percent over a decade. That's not good. Yeah, and so you can see see there's always been movement in, in what people drink as as beer styles. Has, has IPA really made a dent on, on, the, on the styles that people drink? I don't know if it has. I don't know if craft's a big enough percentage for it actually to make much difference overall. Maybe they're going to drink, persuade everyone to drink Hellas. You never know, yeah. I think we're still lager drinkers, aren't we, as by and large, in Europe? Yeah, I think mostly. Don't talk for me, though. No, no. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that there's a beer for every moment. Sometimes it's lager, but... A lot of the time, it's uh, ale if I can find one. Well, I do like I do like a good lager. In fact, fact the only two festivals I go to nowadays are both lager festivals. Oh, really? Are they ones local to you? Yeah, they're ones local to me. Oh, it's also because I'm lazy. <laughs> but there's ones they have at Butcher's Tears. So they have one that's a, a Bayerisch Anstick fest. So it's um, Franconian beer straight from the barrel. And the other one they have is a, um, a Czech festival. So it's... Um, beer from small Czech breweries so that one's always really good oh lovely we were in Salzburg on holiday in Austria and stumbled down into a down a load of stone staircases on the side of a hill basically through a, a nondescript doorway keep going down 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 right angle turn right angle turn get to the bottom and you're basically in this foyer where you can pick up a stoneware uh, mug you can rinse it in a font that's in the middle and then they've got two wooden casks um, that they've got lagers in, basically, and and a load of uh, lovely smoked food going. And it was just amazing. But, it's a brilliant you know, place, Augustina, in Salzburg. And it was just uh, incredible for having that. And it's not an experience you can have in the UK. Or in- no, it's one of my favourite spots, Augustina. I, I really love that place. Were you there in the summer or the winter? It was in the winter, actually, and it would have been about five years ago or so. And we didn't really know quite what we were getting into other than they sold beer there. And then, you know, you realise quite quickly you're in somewhere special. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a brilliant... Well, the, the, their beer garden's wonderful as well, if you're there in the summer. I mean, it's only the first few times I'd been there, I'd only been in the in the winter. Um, but the beer garden's wonderful. It's uh, really nice. We, ne- we never made it there. I think we were just in one of the, the drinking halls. But uh, yeah, incredible place. I definitely recommend it to people. And it's why I think you can have one idea of what lager is in your head, but it's not what they're... No, the beer's really nice there as well. So I, I wondered if you could... You've talked about a little bit about how you go about things. And I'm sure there's no typical day or week for you. But what might one of those look like for you if you're looking into something or you're researching or just generally... Um, trying to write about something how how would your week look uh well it depends on which but i'm working on the stuff i'm doing at the moment that's it's mostly been messing around with tables of numbers of, of beers and then writing bits of stuff about those so that's been a combination of manipulating tables in excel and writing text and then writing some blog posts so most days i, I have to write well I, I have a blog post every day so Unless I'm a few days in advance, I'm normally writing a blog post at some point during the day. Looking stuff up on the internet sometimes or consulting. I've got like various 
things here like Brewers of the British Isles, which I quite often look at, which has got all sorts of details about UK breweries. So if you want to know when they were founded, when they closed, stuff like that, that's really handy. So depending on exactly what I'm doing, I'll often be looking at that to find out information. Yeah, sometimes when I don't have the information to hand, then I'll be having to, to go and look through brewing records and pull the information out or go through to sources of statistics and pull stuff out. So the other day I was looking at stuff about, um, I wanted things about, basically about the percentage of canned beer sold in the UK in the 1970s. Because I, I guess it increased a lot, which is you know, fairly obvious. But anyway, I wanted some numbers, and I realized I didn't have those, so I had to go through a couple of statistical handbooks. Luckily, I'd already got the pages scanned that I needed, because I quite often scan, uh, especially the statistical books. I'll just Some of them I've just gone through and scanned all the pages, because uh, I assume at some point I'll need them. I haven't done that for all of them but normally the, the most useful pages I have. So anyway, so I could just go and pull this all out. So, yeah, that took a half day or something, just basically so I, so I could see what the increase in the percentage of canned beer salt was during the 1970s. So, yeah, it takes a bit of work to do something like that. Yeah, it's mostly boring, <laughs> boring rubbish, really, just, just, just going through various sources. I mean, sometimes also I'm going through other books or looking through the British newspaper archive, the whole reason I'm writing this book about the 1970s is finish the books I'd been writing in the summer and I was just wanting to get some blog posts. And I thought, okay, I'll just, I was just looking for original gravity in the newspaper archive, uh, basically looking after World War II. And I happened to come across a Sunday Mirror article from 1970. I think it was 78, the first one, which had got a whole load of analyses of, of beer. So the the original gravity and the, the, the percentage ABV and the price per pint. And so I found this dead interesting. So I, I was starting to write some, some stuff about this. And I found some other articles as well uh, by searching a bit more. So suddenly I got all this information about the 1970s and I'd written quite a few blog posts about it. And I thought, well... I may as well write a book about this because it's quite interesting. So I can also throw in a load of personal stuff, which is what I've been doing. So personal memories as well, because it's a period where I was actually alive and drinking. So I, I thought it'd make it quite fun. And yeah, so after after writing maybe seven or eight blog posts, I decided, well, I'll, I'll do this as a book. So then rather than writing blog posts, I was writing actual bits of the book and then posting some of those on the blog. So... Yeah, I just sort of fell into writing the book, sort of. But it's been quite interesting because what I've been doing is deliberately throwing stuff out in the blog and getting people to react because I want other people's memories as well. So it's not just uh, facts, bare facts or anything. It's uh, my memories and other people's memories of, of beer and pubs in the 1970s. So I, I think that makes it quite interesting. And I guess as well, if you think about the 1970s in your head and drinking, you might think it was probably quite mono uh, beer culture, that type of thing. Yeah, see, this is exactly what people think. I'm guessing it wasn't. I'm guessing there's a lot more colour than that. Well, yes, because you get the wrong idea if you just think about the, the, the beers that have survived from that time, and that's how it was, because beers were way more distinctive. So... I actually wrote something about this in the, for the introduction to the section of my 1970s book in the, in, in the introduction to the bit about beer, saying, well, you might think these were all just boring brown bitters that all tasted the same, but that's not the case because they were far more distinctive. And what you have to think about is as a beer like Harvey's, right? So beers like Harvey's didn't used to particularly stand out because there were loads of beers like that and that's the one that stayed the same. So what you have to think about is loads of very idiosyncratic beers, I think partly because they had maybe not the most um, technologically advanced systems of yeast management, and so they had all sorts of stuff in their pitching yeast <laughs> that all added to the character of the beer. I, I think my experience of UK beers is that they've got blander generally, the, the, the traditional ones, most of them, since the 70s. And 
Harvey's is what you, I use as my marker to show that it's not just my taste buds having changed, it's actually beer having changed because that's still the same. And so, yeah, it's the other ones that have changed and not me and not Harvey's. And, uh, yeah, so, and, and there were still lines of weird beers left hanging around. I mean, yeah, it's Curry Christian Stout, for God's sake, the best beer ever brewed. <laughs> so, well, the best beer I've ever tasted. But, yeah, there used to be lots of sudden beers that were, that were similar to, to Harvey's. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't just dead dull, and you know you had some some weird old strong beers that were still hanging around. So it was it was more varied and more interesting than people might think. And also you got mild everywhere, so you know it wasn't just bitter. It's uh, do you think do you think we'll see uh, mild uh, in its non dark form come back uh, in the UK? Well, weirder things have happened. Milk stout made a comeback. I wouldn't have put money on that. That, that to me seemed like the, the most unfashionable style imaginable, but and that managed to make a comeback. So I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I jokingly say that I think it will do, but I, I don't know if I genuinely believe that. But you never know. I mean, at a certain point, the IPA name's bound to become poison. That, that's what happens with everything. It's, I mean, I'm, I think it's getting pretty close to saturation points with IPA I, I really don't think you can take that one very much further it's interesting as well I think you know how language changes over time with people using language differently so if someone says something was cool a while ago that might mean one thing to one generation and another thing completely to another generation after it but the same thing happens with beer I guess to an extent which you've probably seen well I was, I was just thinking about this today with the word stout and the word stout what that originally meant was strong so it didn't particularly mean any specific style of beer. It just meant strong beer. And and what you say, well, what does stout mean now? What stout means now is black and roasty, pretty much. And maybe not even so much the roasty nowadays, but, but that's basically all it means. Because someone was saying to me, well, you know, how can you have a stout? Because I published a recipe that was... Uh, 1950s stout that was, I think, 3% ABV. And they say, well, how can you have a stout that's 3%? Well, yeah, when all stout means is black and roasty, well, yeah, you can have a stout of any strengths. That's it, yeah. But it's just really interesting how that changes over over the years. So what you've talked about a little bit about your, you know, how you work and that kind of thing. What would you say you most like about your role? What's your favourite thing? Don't know. I, I actually quite like doing the research, some of it. I, I mean... Some of the bits of just transcribing things aren't that much fun, but the manipulating the, the numbers I, I quite enjoy. And the writing's good fun. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do quite enjoy a lot of the research. Actually going out and, and getting the, the brewing records is a real pain. That's, you know, sort of four hours standing there just taking photographs constantly, which isn't a great deal of fun. But uh yeah, it's, it's it's worth it for for looking through the stuff later. So I mean, so most of the research I quite enjoy. Um, it's only a, a few bits of irritating. And how would you say your you know your role has evolved over time? Yeah, I don't know really. Um, well, I've, I've I've seen to become more orientated towards home brewers over time, not necessarily consciously, but do you think that's because home brewers might have more? Are they capacity to try out different recipes and explore those ones versus commercial breweries at the moment? I think for, for home brewers, it's interesting because I've published lots of different recipes and things that aren't necessarily like uh, modern beers or other recipes they might see. So I guess they, they find that interesting. You're the first port of call for home brewers, I think. Well, hopefully, yeah. But you also do um, work with the brewery in the States, don't you? Well, I've worked, I've, well, I've worked with quite a few different people in the States. So, I mean, I, I did quite a lot of work with um, Goose Island. I've done three beers with them uh, over, I guess it's probably almost 10 years, actually. It's, it's over a long period of time. Each beer has taken, taken a couple of years. Um, so I've done three beers with those. Uh, and then I've done various other ones with, with people in the in the States. Pretty Things, I did a whole load of beers with them. So, I mean, they don't exist anymore, but, I mean, they're in the UK now, so... They've also brewed some of my recipes over there. Yeah, one of my mates and school friends in Britain, he's got a brewery, he's brewed quite a few of my recipes. So, Is there a style you think that's particularly of interest that brewers keep coming back to nowadays? Uh, probably stouts more than anything. 
Well, there's also more room for variation with stats, if, if, if I'm honest. It, 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 uh, I realized this when I was doing some some of my books, uh, and I was trying to, do, you know, collating the information together about various types of beer. And when it came to stats, of just masses of stuff and of really different beers as well, even being brewed in the same period. So you'll have stats that, there's some periods in the UK when you've got stats that are being brewed at 2% ABV and other ones at 10 and a half. So it's like quite a bit of variation there, um, or even under 2%. Some of the Scottish sweet stats just ridiculously weak. So it's a, an interesting style stout. There's been lots of things. Well, if, especially if you start including things like pale stats. So. Is there anything you think that uh, brewers and breweries could learn from vintage ales and vintage beer recipes? Um, blending. This is something that uh, I've really become a fan of since the last two beers that I did with Goose Island, where we did a thing called Obadiah Poundage, which was a keeping and a running port of blended. And the last one we did, which was a similar thing, but with a barley wine, with a, a keeper and a runner blended. And... Yeah, I was I was lucky because I got the chance to taste the unblended and beers and the blend. And in both cases, I thought that the blended beer was better than either of the, of the individual beers. And the aged beer was just like too much, too intense. And then when you put a third of that in with two thirds of the young beer, they got much fresher characteristics. Then you got the nice complex flavors from the aged beer, but you got some youth and vitality to sort of like move that along. It made me think, well, yeah, people are really missing a trick here. And these are flavors that you could not get in an individual beer. You could not get one beer that had those, a combination of those characteristics because it's just not possible. Um, and virtually no one's doing it. You only really get it much in Belgium nowadays. And I was, I'm, I'm surprised no one's really picked this up because I, I was dead impressed by the impact of it and how you could really, you know, have come up with a, something that was better than the sum of the parts. I think it's really interesting because in other you know, industries like winemaking and things, blending's common practice, you know, to make sure you're sort of consistent as well, you know, across uh, harvests and vintages and all that sort of thing. But also it, it hasn't really got that same place in, in the beer world or anything like that. It's also interesting, I think, so the beer that um, Henry made at Dark Star, sort of bringing back the Gale's Prize Old Ale, which, um, you know, did involve taking that beer that had been maturing since 2006 and then combining it with a new brewery. And what resulted was, you know, an incredible kind of mix of time that had just added something that you'd never get from a beer that had been brewed and then matured and conditioned on its own. Yeah, I didn't get, get to taste that, but but yeah, I mean that's that's it's that's exactly the idea, and it used to be mm. fairly common practice in Britain, and the Belgians got that got the whole idea of blending from the UK. So it's really odd that it's completely fallen out of use. Um, I think you've only got the the Green King beer that I can really think of. It's the only real survivor that's been brewed for any length of time. And of course, the, you know you got Prize Old Ale, but you know that's been produced very erratically in recent years. And when was it? When was blending last a thing in the UK? Yeah, probably before World War One, really. But it, 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 mostly because the age after World War One, you didn't get very many people doing any stock beers of any type, because the the fla flavour went out of fashion. So people weren't weren't as interested in having that. Until you just got a few throwback beers that still have that sort of age character. What would you say to younger Ron or someone else who's looking to get into the world of beer writing, beer history, travel beer writing, and those sorts of things? What would your advice be? Uh, probably don't bother unless you're pre <laughs> prepared to waste huge amounts of your life on this. Uh, take more notes. More notes. I do have a few tasting notes from East Germany in 1988. I do have some, some quite old notes, that tasting notes that I took before it was fashionable to do that sort of thing. I know nowadays everyone's logging out on an app or that kind of thing. Yeah, this was done on paper. Do you still do that? And are you logging on paper or do you... Oh, I can't yeah. be asked to do the beer tasting anymore. It's, 
I found at a certain point it was taking all the pleasure out of the actual drinking, so I'd rather just drink a beer rather than think too much about it. And uh, if I had to press you to pick just one, uh, could you tell us what's your favourite beer style or beer? Well, uh, I mean, obviously Courage Rich and Stout, the best beer, and I've still got some, so I can still keep drinking that. I've still got enough to drink a couple of years until I die, so uh, probably even more than that. Other than that, um, St. Bernardus Apt. Lovely beer, yeah. Yeah, that's my go-to beer. I, I, I do like that style of beer, the, the strong, dark Belgian type, whatever you want to call them. Oh, lovely beers. Um, and what's your favourite place to enjoy a beer? Well, a pub, preferably, but um, not that I get to do very much of that nowadays. And God knows what's going to happen when they knock down uh, my current local. Oh, no. Is that on the cards? Yeah, well, no, where I normally go is um, Butcher's Tears, their tap room, and uh, that whole area is due to get demolished. So currently they're due to close 2nd of March. So have you, you got any things that you're coming up that you're excited about? Uh, well, going to Brazil again in March. That's always fun, get a couple of days in Rio, which is, yeah, and it's nice because there's, there's some quite good beer there as well, so... Get to go around a few craft beer places there and then do some judging and hang around and hopefully with some uh, other beer people I know. And then, well, uh, yeah, end of May, June, supposed to be doing some stuff in um, North Carolina and South Carolina and Tennessee. So, so uh, that should be fun. So my mate Jim Karnowski has this brewery in just outside Asheville. I can't remember what we were doing this time. Oh, I know, we're doing doing World War II recipes. But it's always, always fun at his place. He always, he, always has a, he always has a really nice selection. He always does a, a selection of beers that are just the things I want to drink. So. He's laid them on for you. Yeah, yeah, like he did, he did one of my dreams, which was a full selection of beers from a 1910 London pub. So, yeah, that's a, it's, 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 he's, he's a really good brewer, and it should be a fun event. And... Uh, yeah, I get to do a few more things around that that part of the world. So, so you're able to combine a bit of uh, some time off, but also probably still thinking about beer as you go around all these places. Oh no, this is going around giving talks at a whole load of places. So, <laughs> don't don't have much time for just uh, relaxing. I don't think it's just going to be quite busy. But at least there's beer. Well, yeah, at least there's beer. And where can people keep up to date with um, everything to do with Ron Pattinson and all the work that you've got coming up? Well, shut up about Barclay Perkins, my, my blog. There's, uh, yeah, there's all the stuff on there. So I, I post every day, mostly beer history, but occasionally some travel stuff. Yeah, and then I've got my books, which people can buy, which uh, my, my most recent ones being Blitzkrieg, which is about World War Two, which has got two volumes because there's so many recipes. So uh, one is just, I think it was... 550 recipes uh, there are in that one. So, and then my other one, which came out recently, is Stout, which is uh, about London Stout. So that's got, I think, 250 recipes, something like that, from 1805, and the last one was 1970-something. So quite a wide range of recipes in there. They're all available on your website. Yeah, you can find links to them on my uh, blog these books uh, and there's kindle versions of them as well people just look for ronald patterns and then you'll find them and when's your book on the 70s due to come out not sure when, when i finished writing it well it, it depends because i was just thinking today oh i've got all these technical brewing journals from the 1970s maybe i can have a look through those and find some stuff so that might keep me occupied for a while. Um, that's right. I don't want to give you a deadline or anything like that. Oh, no, well, it's because I self-publish it. That's the, that's the joy of this. I can, I can finish it when I like. So it, it depends on when I get fed up, probably, because I can probably most likely keep finding stuff to add to it. Brilliant. Well, I want to say a big thank you for joining us today, Ron. It's been lovely chatting with you, hearing all about um, vintage beer styles, uh, and how you got into it as well. So thank you very much. No problem. Have a good day. Yeah, bye. I thought that was fascinating and a real privilege to hear from Ron. I feel quite fluent about the beers around us today, 
but it was eye-opening to hear about the beers, breweries and people that set the scene for what we enjoy today. So thank you very much for listening and I hope you can join me on the next one. And this is the part where I ask for your help. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review or rating or share it with others. This really helps us out and helps other people find the podcast, particularly as we're starting out. And you can follow us on social media, search for We Are Beer People, all one word. You can also email us at wearebeerpeoplepod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think, share your thoughts, and if you have any recommendations for beer people you'd like to hear from. And until next time, don't forget, you, me, us, them, we are all beer people.